Well, I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes 5. You'll need a Bible to follow along in our message. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back if you need one. Just get their attention. They'll get one of those Bibles to you that's marked for you at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Jack Benny was a legendary comedian who starred on television, but he got his start on the radio. And a couple of trademarks for the persona that he had created were that he was a skinflint, a cheapskate, and he would often give a long pause before delivering the punchline to his jokes. In one skit, he brought both of those together. The skit had Benny walking on the street, and a stranger asks him for a match to light a cigarette, and Benny obliges. But then the stranger says, don't make a move, this is a stick-up. Now come on, your money or your life? Benny paused, and the studio audience, knowing his skinflint character, laughed. And then the robber repeated his command. Look, bud, I said, your money or your life. And Benny snapped back. I'm thinking it over. Not sure what's more valuable to me. My money or my life. And people laughed at the idea that one would consider choosing money over his life But although few, if any, would give up their physical lives for the love of money. In fact, many, many give up their spiritual lives for it. That is, they're willing to, in effect, sell their souls for the love of money. For many, money gives life. And for them, money is life. One commentator said, In all times and places, people seem to be interested in accumulating wealth. People want to get rich. In the past, thousands joined the gold rush. Today, people search for high-paying jobs. Some strive to be CEO of a corporation so they'll receive rich bonuses and stock options. Others go to casinos to hit the jackpot. When the lottery goes over $100 million, people flock to the stores to buy more tickets. They're always searching for more. And some preachers even tap into this human craving for wealth. They promise that God will bless their hearers with wealth and health if only they will step out in faith and send in some, quote, seed money. This past week, a 53-year-old woman from Massachusetts won Seven hundred and fifty eight million dollars in the Powerball lottery that's played in 44 states. Two things about her response struck me. She said, quote, I had a pipe dream and my pipe dream finally came true. That is, she dreamed of winning the lottery. And in her words, she even had some expectation that it should happen. And now finally it has. Now, I'll mention her other response that caught my attention a bit later. But for now, I wonder how many of us can identify with that woman. Ambrose Bierce called the lottery 
attacks on people who are bad at math. And yet I wonder how many of us play it religiously. And when I say religiously, I'm using that word two ways. And whether you play the lottery or not, how many of us spend time thinking about what it would be like to be rich? Today's passage in Ecclesiastes is about money and its effects. So if you're a guest with us today, you've come on a Sunday when I'm talking about money. Which, unfortunately, due largely to the influence of charlatans on television, preachers have a reputation for doing. For my part, I talk about money when the passage that we're considering on a particular Sunday talks about it. It's one advantage to spending most of your time preaching through entire books of the Bible. You don't select the topic so no one can fairly accuse you of just choosing what you want to talk about. But as we look at our passage today and we see what it says about the desire for money, it's going to be easy for us to apply it to people other than ourselves. People who we say are filthy rich and they're living in another world than the one that we inhabit. But I encourage you as we look at today's passage to apply what's said based not on your level of income, but on your level of desire. You may not be rich, but you may really wish you were. You may not be like the rich, but you'd love and you'd give anything to be like them. The Bible warns against the desire for money because money has many ill effects on people. The Bible speaks of it often. In fact, there are 500 verses in the Bible on prayer. There are less than 500 verses in the Bible on faith. And there are more than 2,300 verses in the Bible about money and possessions. And the vast majority of them are in a negative context. So we need to give attention to what God says about this and the desires of our hearts and how they can be encrusted with this ill effect that is the desire for money. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his word. Our Father, we thank you for gathering us. And thank you for instructing us in your word. Lord, we ask that that instruction would have its intended effect in our lives. So we ask you to open our hearts, clear our minds, so that we can concentrate on what you say. Grant us, Lord, a desire to please you in this matter of the desire and accumulation of money. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week we have inserted in your program an outline for the message. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out so that you can follow along. And I say, first of all, in that outline, that money motivates oppression. Money motivates oppression. Verse 8 of Ecclesiastes 5. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself 
profits from the fields. Now, this describes a government bureaucracy in which everyone is involved on the take. In fact, the Hebrew word translated denied in verse 8 is literally robbed. So if you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights robbed, it says. Everybody is looking out for themselves in this government-sanctioned pyramid scheme. The person at the top of the pyramid, the king, makes the most. And each level of official shakes down those under him to please those above him. The mid and lower level bureaucrats are pressured to extort their quota. The officers, these governmental officers, extract as much revenue as possible from lesser officials who, would, who in turn go to the peasantry for their annual dues. And this would go on often. So the Bible warned against it often. Proverbs 28 says, A ruler who oppresses the poor is a beating rain that leaves no food. And it keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming, but does nothing for those on whom it's falling. The Bible warns against, in Proverbs 22, oppressing the poor in order to enrich oneself. In the New Testament, that's why tax collectors were so despised. They were given an amount of money to pay to the Roman government, and they could get it any way that they could, often by threats and intimidation. And they could extort from the people as much as possible and keep what was over and above what was sent to the government. Last year, the federal government prosecuted a vendor, a vendor of supplies to Detroit public schools. He paid kickbacks to 13 school principals who received those kickbacks in exchange for giving him business. In all, that scheme cost the district $2.7 million dollars money desperately needed by the children of Detroit. And of course, that vendor and those principals all knew very well how deprived the district students are, but they apparently didn't care. But money doesn't just motivate oppression in urban areas, of course. White-collar moral criminals in boardrooms do it all the time with things like price gouging. Just a few weeks ago, a 34-year-old hedge fund manager was convicted of three counts of fraud in federal court. But he had made news two years earlier when, using his wealth to buy a pharmaceutical company, he immediately increased the price of one drug by 5,000%. The New York Times reported overnight there was an increase in the price of a 62-year-old drug that is the standard of care for treating a life-threatening parasitic infection. The drug was in, acquired in 2015 by this pharmaceutical startup run by a former hedge fund manager. The company immediately raised the price to 200, excuse me, to $750 a tablet, $750 from $13.50 bringing the annual cost of treatment for some patients to hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can tell stories like that over and over again. And that's why verse 8 says we should, quote, not be surprised at such things. Because money motivates people to do weird stuff. 
Money motivates people to do weird stuff. Now, the weird stuff it urges us to do may not be to oppress because we may not be in position to do that. But it can still motivate us to do strange things. We're still willing to do things that push the boundaries in order to make money. And friends, we need to be wary of our own hearts in this matter. Now, let me speak directly to you. I have warned in the past about using the church's directory to solicit business. In fact, a few weeks ago, I sent an email reminding us all that we have a web page. Our church has had for years a web page dedicated to listing businesses and services offered by our members and urging all to use that rather than directly soliciting business from fellow church members. Now, let me be a bit more direct. Business and ministry do not go together. I have avoided getting involved and entangled in any kind of business venture for my entire ministry, and it's going to remain that way. And the reason is business and ministry do not go together. And not just pastoral ministry, your ministry doesn't go with business either. If people think that you have a relationship with them that has an ulterior motive, it will destroy and possibly sever that relationship. I'm asking you not to use your relationships in the church to sell or solicit. If you have a business, we'll be glad to list it on our marketplace page. We'll even call attention to it in a church-wide email so that folks can then contact you if and when they want your services. But you should not ask anyone to buy your stuff or participate in your business. As I've said, if people think that there is any other reason for your relationship with them other than that you love them and you have your be- their best spiritual interest at heart, it will hurt and perhaps end your relationship. Friends, there can be no doubt in the body of Christ as to our motivations for relationship. But soliciting business creates that doubt and it should not be there. Now, I've asked you very directly to not do that. Now, for our guests, I want you to know we don't have a huge problem. But obviously, there's a bit of an issue to address. That's why I'm doing it. For what it's worth, it's much worse at many other places and even many other churches, I'm sad to say. Salespeople see a growing church as a target-rich environment for their goods and services. Some even move from place to place over the years to sell their wares. Now, we don't have folks like that here, I'm glad to say. But we have had direct solicitations for several types of businesses, and it should not be. So take that as a word to the wise, and thank you. Money causes otherwise good people to do weird stuff and to find ways to justify it. Don't be one of those people. Money motivates oppression. And secondly, in your outline, money promises satisfaction. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. 
Whoever loves money. So think about that. What does it mean to love money? You know, sometimes we use these phrases, don't make money your God. We say things like that. And the problem with phrases like that is it gets everybody off the hook. (laughs) Because everybody can go, well, money's not my God. You know, when would I ever pray to money? When would I ever bow down to money? Money's not my God. I'm off the hook. So phrases like that are almost useless. And this is a biblical phrase, but it definitely needs to be explained. What does it mean to love money? Because nobody here thinks they love money. So we need to break that down a little bit. Loving money means giving yourself for money. Remember that love means giving. Giving of yourself in relationships for the sake of another. So the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. If you want a succinct definition of love, you can find that in 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. He gave. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So when the Bible says do not love money, it means don't give yourself for money. So the Bible in the New Testament says the love of money, the giving of yourself for money, is a root of all kinds of evil. And just two verses prior to warning against that desire for money and giving yourself for money, we're told how content we should be as God's people. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. If we have the necessities of life, We'll be content with that. Jesus said, take heed and beware of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Our nation's first billionaire, John D. Rockefeller, was once asked, how much money is enough? And he reportedly replied, just a little bit more. An article in the Wall Street Journal in 2011 was titled, Don't envy the super rich. They're miserable. It says of the respondents to a survey, this was 120 people worth $25 million or more, that, quote, they still do not consider themselves financially secure. For that, they say, they would require an average one quarter more wealth than they currently possess. To the rest of us, it looks like those who live for money are having a wonderful time of it. And I have no doubt that for a while that's true. But the thrill wears off. And you soon learn that most of the people around you are there. They are around you because of your money. In 2005, the then newlywed Melania Trump addressed a business class at New York University. A student asked the supermodel if she would still be with Donald Trump if he was not rich. She answered, quote, if I weren't beautiful, do you think he'd be with me? She said, in effect, nah, I wouldn't be with him if he wasn't rich. And he wouldn't be with me if I wasn't beautiful. And in addition to knowing that you're being used, there's a superficiality that bothers the conscience of those who still have one. They become disturbed at the game of one-upsmanship by having the latest toy and experiencing the latest thrill. They know they've diminished themselves and there's a sadness 
in the soul that they still have, but they've sold to someone else. The Atlantic Magazine quoted a super rich person saying, quote, the novelty of money has worn off. And friends, that's true of every external stimulant that it promises more than it can deliver. Whether it's sex or drugs or adventure or career or power or influence, it's true of all of them, as well as money, that the thrill wanes and though you want more, you get less for your effort. That's why those great theologians, the Eagles, said in the song I quoted a couple of weeks ago, Desperado, you're losing all your highs and lows. Ain't it funny how the feeling goes away? Up and down and you're losing that. You're losing that feeling and it goes eventually away. Money promises satisfaction. And I say in your outline, it promises that, but it cannot be kept. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? So let's suppose you're successful at what you dream about. You amass wealth. You increase your money, but you're also going to increase those who consume that money. You now need a maid to clean the house. A gardener to trim the lawn. A nanny to watch the kids. A chauffeur to drive the car. An accountant to keep the books. A broker to invest the money. A bodyguard to protect you and your family. All these people and more have to be paid. In addition, the tax man will require a good cut. And charities will fill your mailboxes with requests for donations. You'll discover that you have many so-called friends who would love to relieve you of some of that money. And so verse 11 says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And then what benefit are those riches to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The answer is nothing. There's no gain. All the owner can do is feast his eyes on them. That is, the owner merely gets to watch as other others consume his goods. There's no gain in having more than you need. That woman who won this week's Powerball lottery said, she said, I just want to be alone and be able to be me. Well, good luck with that. Because she's going to find she has friends and relatives she never knew of. Money, money promises satisfaction, but it cannot be kept. And secondly, it cannot be trusted. Verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Now, the laborers mentioned here may well refer to the oppressed poor talked about in verse 8. Sometimes they only have very little food to eat, but whether they have little or much, they sleep well. But in contrast to that, the abundance of the rich permits them no sleep. The rich worry about their riches. They see it slipping away as more and more people want a piece of the pie. They fret whether their investments are safe. They're anxious about a recession. Will they lose everything for which they've worked so hard? 
That Wall Street Journal article I mentioned earlier says of the rich that, quote, they turn out to be a generally dissatisfied lot whose money has contributed to keep to deep anxieties involving love, work and family. Some of you will remember the one year wonder Detroit Tigers pitcher in 1976, Mark Fidrich, Mark the Bird Fidrich. He hurt his arm after that fantastic season that he had. He only lasted a couple of more seasons. He played for $16,000. That was the minimum salary in 1976, $16,000. He went 19-9. and He won the Rookie of the Year award that year. He was signed to a $250,000 a year contract. But his arm was hurt and he was out of baseball three years later. He was asked how he looked at all of that. Fidrich said this, you know, I'm fine because for every dollar that you have, there's a problem that goes with it. It's a good and wise way to look at it. Money motivates oppression. It promises satisfaction, but it can't meet that promise. Thirdly, money vanishes suddenly. Verse 13. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Now, when it says grievous evil, it's literally a sickening thing. Solomon, who wrote this, is saying it makes me sick when I think about the fact that people hoard their money and they are often harmed. This reminds us of the story that Jesus told of a man who had amassed wealth. and He wondered to himself, what should I do with it? Jesus said this about him. The man said, I will build bigger barns and there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus said, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Verse 14 says, they might lose this wealth through some misfortune. So that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. So they might lose this wealth. That's what's going on. That's why they have nothing left. It harms them because some misfortune comes. They die. Something happens in the economy. All things that they can't control. But it's all what they put their life and energies into. In the 2008 economic crash, people had investments that were secured by insurance. Secured by insurance. So what happens if the insurance company goes belly up, which is precisely what happened with AIG? Well, then don't have your investments backed by an insurance company. Make sure they're insured by the, quote, full faith and credit of the United States of America. That's a phrase that appears on our currency. But friends, did you know that, too, can collapse? And that in 2008, we came as close as ever in our lifetimes to that actually happening. And it could happen next month. And it could happen next year. 
Verse 15 says, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This reminds us of the story of Job. You remember the story of Job that in a single day he lost everything he had, including his family. The Bible tells us that lightning burned up his shepherds and his sheep. Another enemy killed his last servants and carried off his camels. Finally, a great wind destroyed the house occupied by his children, killed them all. Having lost all his possessions as well as his children, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. It's true for every person here. But Job was a godly man, and he still worshipped God, and he said, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Only a person who is not gripped by their possessions and by their money and by their relationships can say that. This is in contrast to the attitude of the person we have in verse 16. This too is a grievous, sickening evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? So this rich person in verse 16 is not like Job. Solomon repeats in verse 16, this is a grievous evil. And just as they come, so they're going to go. What do they gain for this toiling of the wind? The answer is nothing. No gain. They'll take nothing for their toil. Their labors for riches is like toiling for the wind. Think about that metaphor, toiling for the wind. You can grab for the wind. You can try to catch it in your hands, but it slips right through your fingers. And so it is, the Bible is saying, with pursuing wealth. It slips right through your fingers. One bad venture and it's all gone. A lifetime wasted. And what's the end result of a life given to that? Verse 17. All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. In biblical times, eating was a social event. When Abraham was approached by three strangers, he rushed out to meet them. He invited them to a lavish dinner. When the prodigal son returned home, the father rushed out to meet him and he welcomed him with a full banquet. Eating together was a celebration, a social event. But the rich who have lost their riches eat all alone in darkness. Their so-called friends have left them. The house has been foreclosed. The gas and the electricity have been cut off. They eat in darkness, meaning they can no longer afford to light their lamps at night. But in the the context, darkness is more than just the absence of light. Some commentators say darkness is is a metaphor here for death. That the rich who have lost their riches eat in darkness because their life is over. There's no joy in their life. They may as well, from their standpoint, be dead. And reflecting on their wasted life, thinking about what might have been, verse 17 says, they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Solomon piles up the painful consequences of such a wasted life. He lives, but he's dead to life. A miserable and angry old person. Who would want to end up like that? Money motivates oppression. It promises satisfaction. 
but it vanishes suddenly. And lastly, money claims priority. Here in verse, beginning in verse 18, we have a restatement of a principle which we've already seen three times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to see three more times. Verse 18. This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. One preacher says it this way, there is relative value but not ultimate value to money. It enables us to eat and drink. It sustains us as we pursue our work in this world. But notice something interesting about verse 18. It's appropriate to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in our labor, but it doesn't say one thing about wealth in that verse. And that's because satisfaction or the enjoyment of life does not depend upon wealth. It depends upon our knowledge that God has sustained us and He's placed us here To use what he has given for his work. So I say in your outline, it is not necessary. Money is not necessary for enjoyment. Money claims priority, but it's not necessary for enjoyment. And verse 19 says, and moreover, when God gives someone wealth, when it says when God gives someone wealth, you could read that if God gives someone wealth. That is, you don't have to have wealth. You can have enjoyment without it. But if God does give someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, that's a gift from God. God does choose to give wealth to some. If we're going to avoid the pitfalls and harm that wealth can produce, we must begin by recognizing that all we have has come to us as a gift from God. So friends, every one of us who receives a paycheck, understand this. Your paycheck does not ultimately come to you from your company. It comes ultimately from God. And it's meaningless without Him and apart from His purposes. So money claims priority. But it's not necessary for enjoyment. And I say in your outline, it is a tool for God's purposes. A tool for God's purposes. And the person who lives that way and uses money in that way as a tool for God's purposes, in contrast to this miserable person in verse 17, this person is, according to verse 20, seldom reflecting on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. They're not looking back with regrets. They're not looking back at a wasted life. God occupies them with gladness of heart. John Piper has written, God is not glorified when we keep for ourselves, no matter how thankfully, what we ought to be using to alleviate the misery of unevangelized millions. The evidence that many Christians have been deceived by this doctrine of wealth is how little they give and how much they own. God has prospered them. And by an almost irresistible law of consumer culture, baptized by a doctrine of health, wealth, and prosperity, they have bought bigger and more houses, 
newer and more cars, fancier and more clothes, better and more meat, and all manner of trinkets and gadgets and containers and devices and equipment to make life more fun. Yikes. Is that true of you? Have you bought into the myths of wealth that have been foisted upon us by our society? Understand this, friends, on a worldwide scale, we're all rich. Did you know that? You see, we look at the filthy rich and we go and we long for that. We desire that. But the truth is we're rich. When the Bible speaks to us of rich people, we would be thought of as rich in biblical times. The Bible gives a timely warning then regarding the dangers of wealth. That includes all of us here. It says this, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul, who wrote this, goes on to say, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And that greatest ruin and destruction that I can imagine for American Christianity is the ruin and destruction wreaked by apathy as we pursue our pleasures. And it's in that context that Paul wrote then, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then after giving these warnings about wealth, Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, to command the rich about how to use money. He said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Do not let wealth produce pride, pride that says it's mine. I got it when it really came from God. Pride that says I'm going to use it as a lever for power to control my situation and to control others. And he goes on, Timothy, command them not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. That second command is don't let it shift your affections from God. And then he says, finally, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This third command is to give it away freely in order to multiply the ministry of our God. You see, friends, the biggest danger for us is that we become distracted from what's really important by the false promises of money. We become distracted. There's a famous 16th century painting that hangs in the Louvre Museum in Paris. That painting is called uh, The Money Lender and His Wife. It's kind of dark. I don't know if you can see it all there. But you have this guy who is counting his money. And his wife has a book. You can't see it, but if you look really closely at that book, actually some of the pages have red lettering. It's thought that it might be a Bible, certainly a devotional book. But notice where she's looking. She's distracted from the book to the coin. And it's making the point. That money distracts from what's really important, which is the mission of the Lord and using our time and our talent and, yes, our treasure in order to pursue it. 
And Jesus said it very bluntly. You cannot serve God and money. If you're satisfied in God, then money for you will be a tool to serve him, not a rival in competition with him. Here's your take-home truth. Our money. Now you notice, our is in quotes. Whose money is it? It's God's. Our money is from God and should be used for God. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for answering our prayer to meet with us, to open our hearts, clear our minds. I pray that that's been done for everyone here, but we thank you for those for whom it has been done. We ask you then, Lord, to take this truth and see that it's applied, that the, that the vows that are made right now in this room by your children will be made good in this coming week and in the weeks and months and years ahead. May we love you above all things and all people. May we use everything that you provide for the purpose for which you have provided it to advance your mission of bringing, spreading your fame in your world. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.